Okay, so this morning is Sunday. It is January 9th. It is 2011. That's still hard to say. I actually have to write down the year or I will get it wrong. Um, our message this morning, I think I put in the pastor's corner of the bulletin, would be called Bemidbar. Bemidbar is the Hebrew word that means in the desert of. I want you to notice that it does not say the desert of what? <laughs> Bemidbar does not mean the Judean wilderness. It does not mean the desert of sin. It does not mean the Sinai Peninsula. It simply means in the desert of. And that becomes important because in this room, some of you are in one kind of desert, some of you in another kind of desert, but this book is addressing any situation in which you have been called out of something yucky and you have not yet arrived to the beautiful that God has promised. This book addresses that. And in English, we take a pretty boring stance with it. We call it the book of Numbers. I mean, it makes me numb to think about Numbers. Unless you're a strange math kind of person who just gets all kind of excited that there were 22,000 and then there was 22,273 and there's a difference there, uh, then maybe we've let you down with the English title of this book. It has not much to do with numbers, although it contains numbers. It has everything to do with how we handle moments in our life where we are not yet at the good places that God has called us to. Has anybody been in a place like that? Then you have been in the wilderness of, and you can name it. And you might be like me. Go from wilderness to wilderness to wilderness to wilderness. I thought if we talked about this, we would turn to the book of Bemidbar. Did, uh, did you see in the bulletin there are a couple of scriptures that are quoted? One directly and one indirectly? I want to tell you that it is through many hardships and trials that we enter the kingdom of God. Anybody that tells you different is selling something. And they may be selling their messages for $19.99. You'll have to decide whether or not you think that's okay. I believe that the Spirit of God will give us truth, give us revelation, and the first thing that I want you to know about Bemidbar, the in the desert of, is that this book maybe more than any other contains something. Look at these first few words. The Lord spoke to Moses. Boy, isn't that comforting? In the book called In the Desert of Bemidbar, the very first words are, and the Lord spoke. Our deserts become manageable when we know what God's will is. This is why it is important to know the Word. This is why it is important to fellowship with God and those who do. The further we get outside of God speaking, the more a desert just becomes a desert. Right? And the Lord spoke. It's interesting. Sometimes when we talk about the Lord speaking, people go, well, how does He speak? In what way did He speak? How many different ways do you think the Lord speaks just to Moses in this book? The NIV team that put together the study notes for the Bible that I have say that there are 20 different forms in the original Hebrew of ways that God says He spoke, showed, revealed, taught to Moses in this book alone. So in 20 different ways, God spoke to him. Do you know how many times God spoke to Moses in the book of Numbers? 150 times. 
Isn't it amazing? We think of mountaintops as the places to be. We think of these high spiritual experiences as the place to be. And yet in the Tanakh, the book that God speaks to Moses the most in is in the desert of. I was speaking with Lindsay this morning and she said one thing about the desert. So it becomes vital to hear God's Word. It becomes important. You know why? What is heightened about the desert, by the way? What is different from the desert than, say, the penthouse in the middle of New York City? What is different about being in the desert than being in the land of plenty? Your life is on the line. A mistake could kill you. Going stray could harm you. There are so many things that your senses must be heightened because you are in the desert. Are we ever not in the desert? I want to tell you that our comforts, our securities, are but an illusion. There is never a time when we need to be less sensitive to the Lord. Never a time when our life is not on the line. Never a time that we should let our spiritual guard down. This is why Peter says, prepare your minds for action. It's also why the Proverbs say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty comes upon you like a bandit. When the Bible speaks of poverty, it is not speaking of the lack of money. It is speaking about an oppressive thing that has come upon you because you have not been vigilant. The American Gospel will tell you, come to the altar. Pray a 30-second prayer. Get your USDA Christian stamp and go home good, fat, happy, and blessed. Stop by Walmart every few years. Buy whatever trash they are selling to the Christian community because we buy it that says you should be rich. Never mind the fact that the church is suffering from leprosy. Never mind the fact that lives are being ripped apart because there are no shepherds. They're only paid entertainers. This is the American Gospel, but it is not the Gospel of God. The Gospel of God addresses the people of God who are between the slavery that they left and the inheritance that they're headed for. And the first thing that He wants you to know is He will speak to you. Don't you ever give up your right to hear from God. Don't let cessationists tell you it doesn't exist or doesn't happen. You know, just because my wife is not talking to me does not mean she is not speaking. Might just be something wrong with my relationship with her. I'm convinced that the reason that people say God does not speak is He is not speaking to them. But He does speak to us. Well, who is them and who is us? I would say it's whosoever would come to Him. We cannot approach the King of the universe with our own ideas and expect Him to bless them. We cannot walk to Him with our own form of Christianity and say, this is what I am going to do, now I want you to bless it. He is not a guarantor on your loan. He is not somebody there simply to witness your signature and give approval to it. He is our God. And He will put you in situations where you have no choice but to cry out to Him because He loves you. Because He loves you and He knows that if He can teach you to hear His voice, there is hope for you. Turn with me to Numbers 9. Can anybody give an amen Amen. for not being a slave anymore? 
Can anybody say so be it unto God that we are not yet where we're going? We may not be where we're going, but at least we are not where we were. What was your life like before He rescued you? What was it like before He rescued you? The world says, oh man, I went to this party and it was off the hook. We got so loaded. And then you listen to everything that comes after that and none of it is good or life-giving. It is deception. It is deception. We, in the charismatic world, believe in spiritual things. But we often don't realize how powerful and real deceitful schemes are. And the devil has gotten them for you. We act as if we can eat once a week and be strong enough for the battle. We act as if because some anointed man prayed for you, that now you have an anointed that will never fail. Your divine enablement from God comes from you feeding yourself His presence daily. Daily. I want to tell you I've now been in the kingdom long enough to see amazing successes. If we're thinking of the sons of Jesse, David's brothers, I have learned in the kingdom that what's caught the prophet Samuel by surprise is still catching us by surprise. Some of the people you never thought could straighten up and walk right. Some that look hopelessly beyond repair turn around and become great superstars for the king because they heard his voice in the wilderness. Others that are like Jesse's older sons that look strong and prominent and tall and vigorous do not work the soil of their heart and stop hearing His voice somewhere in the wilderness. Friends, the wilderness is good because we can hear from God. But it is not the end in itself. There is a place we are headed. And this is the perfect kingdom of God. In Numbers 9, we find out something that they found out in the Passover. Turn with me to Numbers 9. 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, When any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. This is an interesting thing. They were given a command when they left Egypt. They were told on the 14th of Nisan, each of you is to... Take a lamb into your house. You're to slaughter it at twilight. You put its blood on your door. You share this lamb with everyone in the house. And the amount of lambs that are killed are to be in proportion with the number of people, and none of it is to be wasted. And you eat this meal with your belt tucked, or your cloak tucked in your belt. You eat it in haste because you are leaving slavery. He has purchased you. Death is no longer upon you. And there was one day of salvation. But when the people were in the desert and confused, and some had not properly prepared for Passover, maybe they'd been in the presence of a dead body and were ceremonially unclean. Maybe something had happened and they did not get home. Maybe a volcano went off while they were in India and they could not travel back home. It happened to me last year. Our God, through His grace, says they may still celebrate Passover. There will be a second chance. 
Here is the second chance. It will be in the second month on the 14th day. This is an important thing. From a larger theological perspective, the Passover lamb will be presented first to Israel and last to Israel. Two major presentations. That's going to occur. We've already been in one and we will see the second when they look upon the one they pierced. And a fountain is opened, as Zechariah said, and the nation of Israel experienced salvation. But maybe more importantly in our lives, sometimes in the wilderness, we feel as, we've, as if we've missed our opportunity and it will never come again. The devil uses this to beat you up. If you had not made a left turn back there, then you'd be in God's will. But since you did, you can't ever be back. I have harped on the idea there is no such thing as the permissive will of God, and there is not. That's true. Having said that, there is the grace of God. And the grace of God says, I do not throw you away because you stumble. I will give you another chance. Now we need to know something about the grace of God, which I think is supremely illustrated in that tenth verse. Tell the Israelites... When any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. That is mercy. That is grace. They are to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must not leave any of it till morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. In other words, it is not a new scheme. It is not a second option. It is the first option presented again in mercy. But if a man who is ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate Passover, in other words, a man who has the opportunity, who could do it, and chooses not to, that person must be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at the appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. One thing to realize in the desert is that God's grace may bring you another opportunity. But that grace is balanced with the idea you cannot continue to look into the opportunity of God, not take advantage of it, and be guaranteed deliverance. In fact, it works the other way. At some point, our Lord will look at you and say, you will bear the consequence of your sin. He came to bear sin for all mankind, but He will not make you accept it. He will not make you receive what would be freely given to you. How many people that unforgiveness and let sin's deceitfulness harden their hearts so that they miss grace after grace after grace. One thing we need to know in the wilderness is God is speaking. A second thing we need to know in the wilderness is grace was the second opportunity, not the 10,000 that you're still planning in your future. Grace cannot be counted on for the future. Grace is now. Do you understand that? This could be tricky, especially for us modern people who would like to parse this word and say things like, well, grace, if grace is really grace, then kind of everybody's saved. No, this is a lie and a deception from hell. Grace is that you're not dead already. Grace is that you were condemned already 
but the Lord has sent you a rescue option. That is grace. You cannot count on it for tomorrow. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. In the wilderness, when you get an opportunity for salvation, you take it. You are not promised another. So you say, wait a minute, Eric, I missed one. I thought you said there would be another one. God's grace may send you another one, but you are not guaranteed another option. Yes. I'm dealing with a man outside of our congregation that I have some relationship with. And his attitude is, after I've done these things, then I will get right with the Lord. So pick up that Bible that the Gideons gave you in the second grade. Jesus calls men like you fools. You have no day, no, no knowledge of the day or hour at which this will come upon you. John 6.44 says you cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. It has to be His work. It's grace that He draws us more than once. But grace does have its limits. It's not up to me to determine where the limit is. If it were, some of you would not have gotten a second shot and others would get 10,000 shots. Because I'm an impartial human being. But our God judges this creation without partiality. Either you are standing in faith in His Son, or you are not. And it doesn't matter whether we're friends, or relatives, or whether we're both blonde hair and blue eyed, or whether we're both dark skinned. It doesn't matter. All that matters is did you take opportunity on the day of salvation? Turn with me to Numbers 9, verse 15. The first thing that I would like you to know about Bay Midbar is God speaks in the desert. The second thing that I would like you to know about Bay Midbar is there is grace in the desert, but grace has limits. Here comes the ninth chapter in the 15th verse. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony was set up, the cloud covered it. I could teach on this one sentence for the rest of my life and be perfectly pleased. On the day that the tabernacle... The tent of, what does it say? Testimony. Testimony. Come on now. It may be not easy to see on you because you are all rippled in tone. I mean like Greek gods, bronze Adonises out here. But on me there's some skin that is still hanging in places. And if I bounce it wiggles a little bit. That skin the Bible calls, Paul calls, a tent. He does. He says the tent of this body. All of you forget your lap band images. <laughs> Does your tent have a testimony in it? Amen. Amen. Because the tabernacle of God is based upon a tent with a testimony. And if you carry the testimony of God in you, if you were once in the world but have now been bought by Him and are being led by Him, guess what hovers upon your life? The cloud of God. <coughs> The Shekinah glory of God. As Psalm 121 says, He will not allow the sun to smite you by day nor the moon by night. He who watches over you will not slumber and will not sleep. This means that we have an ever-present help in times of trouble. In the desert, you are not alone. As long as you are the tent of His testimony. Let me ask you, whose testimony are you? Well, how would we know this? What do you give testimony to? I feel so bad today. 
You know, life sucks. <laughs> Whatever else we might put on Facebook these days. Yeah. What are you giving testimony to while you are in the desert? Because you are the tent of His testimony. This means that when people encounter you, when they walk up, they don't just see the outer shell. They're supposed to see something God placed inside there. Now how do you know what is in a man's heart? It's coming out of his mouth. Oh my goodness saints, wake up, think about that! What has been coming out of our mouths? Darnell has a testimony. She is a tent of testimony. She couldn't wait for me to get to her house. And while I was there in between all of my joking. Yeah, I Angie knows the joking. God forgive me for that. She was giving testimony, and you know what it is? What we say is important. I've been telling everyone, my God heals me. The pain won't be as bad as they say. The duration of my illness will not be as long as they say. My God is healing me. He's healing me. He's healing me. I feel better already. Amen. What is your testimony? I said, well, I just don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, that's not really how I feel. Well, perhaps if you set your heart to feel that way, it might become a reality. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen anybody's life improved by feeling miserable? <laughs> and yet it is our default. You know when I'm typing something in Microsoft Word, one of my petty frustrations is it's always trying to put me in the Roman Empire. You know, it says Times, New Roman. <laughs> and I happen to like other fonts. And no matter how many times I change to the other font, if I skip a line or move down, it puts me back in Times New Roman. We have a default. And our default pulls at the corners of our mouths. Our default depresses us. Our default gives the testimony of man that says, I have tried and I fail because I'm leaning on my own arm. The default says, pity me. And in your mutual pity with me, we will somehow find more pity. <laughs> in the desert, we need to remember we are the tent of His testimony. <coughs> and His presence is hovering above us. We cannot say He's hovering above us if we will not stand under Him. For Him to hover above us, we have to be beneath Him. Every time we espouse things that are not written in the Word, every time we are living out something that is different than what God says, we are exalting ourselves above Him. We are not the tent of His testimony anymore. We've become a testimony unto ourselves. We've taken up the American Gospel. We've taken up the better than you Christianity. We've taken up the Bless Me Club. Sometimes we co-opt biblical names and principles for these things. Are you praying the prayer of Jabez? You have to be a believer to do that, my friend. Are you dwelling under the cloud? Let me ask you something. In a natural desert situation, do you want shade or not? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You have got to stand in His presence if you want the benefit of His shade. My father hit a hole in one the other day. Oh, wow. Before a 70th birthday, he hit a hole in one. That's a special moment. You know what's a more special moment? 
when he stands in his congregation and prophesies in a tongue that is not his and a language he doesn't understand because the Spirit of God is hovering upon him. Amen. Amen. That is a special moment. I don't know about all of that crazy spiritual stuff. You know, I just don't know if it's real. Well, you were here, weren't you? Ordinary people being moved on by an extraordinary God. We are the tent of His testimony. Listen to this. This becomes very important. <coughs> on the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud... <coughs> Covered it. I'm sorry. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued. You remember when Moses, when Moses saw the uh, burning bush? Yeah. He was curious. He wanted to go see. Then almost everything that God told him while at the burning bush, he argued with and didn't want. You know, he threw down a snake, at, uh, a, a staff, and became a snake. He ran from it. Sometimes the church is excited. The presence of God is like a fire. We say things like, fire of God, fire of God, receive the fire of God. But if anybody does receive the fire of God, they're scared to death of it. But if you dwell in the fire of God all of the time, if you've become familiar with the presence of God, if your walk has more supernatural in it than natural, if your thoughts are more based on His Word than your Word, if your tent is looking less like your testimony and more like His testimony, well, then you might be comfortable in this place. You know, all the nations watched Israel. They could see this. All the nations surrounding it could see it. And they were horrified of what would happen when Israel got to them because they knew God was with them. Isn't it an amazing thing when other people can see God is with you, but you don't see it? Right? I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm struggling so much in my life. Everything is against me. But your relatives are still calling and asking for you to pray for their sick. Your lost neighbor is saying, hey, you're a Christian. Would you pray? They see the fire of God. But it's become so normal to us that we have learned to act like it's not there even when it is. One of the things that I like about seeing people leave her church and bond to what God's called them to. Is they see that it is good where they're at. Anywhere God has planted you is good. But they all have the same testimony. It was special when we were there. It's a funny thing, the magical transformation. It's a little bit like when a fifth grader moves from fifth grade elementary school to sixth grade junior high. You know, there's a magical transformation that happens as they enter junior high. There are no teachers in here? Okay, I got a laugh from two teachers. You begin to value and appreciate what had been commonplace because you find out it can be rare. This is what makes the desert beautiful. When things are rare, they're costly to you. The presence of God was there every day, so it felt familiar. Could maybe overlook it. I mean, this manna falls every day. But as far as the rest of the world goes, it was so rare that there was only one people group that was happening. This is what our church is like. This is what every real church is like. <clears throat> that is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. 
Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whether the clouds, wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites camped. This is a principle we're all familiar with, right? When the cloud moves, what do the Israelites do? Okay. So take off your super spiritual hat for a minute, and let's just get real. We got, depending on who you talk to, maybe a couple million Israelites. Okay? What we're going to move on to see in this, verse 19, when the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed. Move down to verse 21. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning. Look at verse 23. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. It's one thing to say, wherever the Lord moves, I will go. Let's imagine. We just have these people. Not, not two million. Can we all agree this is not two million people? Okay. Right now, it is 11.45. I want you to gather all of your things. Everything that you own. We're moving. Where are we going? Don't know. How long are we going to be there? Don't know. So you get up, you do that, you're all excited. Oh, we're following the Lord. Yay. Isn't it good, brothers, be in the house of the Lord? We're following the Lord. God says, stop! And you're like... The back of our camp has not yet got to the place where the front of our camp was. And we stop. He says, yeah, stop. Then the next time you move for a whole week, and then stop. And then the next time, it's very hot. And you move all day, and you camp in the evening, and he says, get up in the morning. Let me ask you, if I just ask you to do something silly, like, I don't know, everybody on this side of the room, get up and move to that side of the room. And as soon as you sat down, I said, okay, whoa, let's go back. How long before you grumble? Isn't it good to be in a small church? We know each other. Long before you grumble. Let's spend the next 38 years doing it. The reason people grumble in the desert is you have to follow the Lord, and we don't always like to be led. We like to be gods to ourselves. That comes out when you're carrying all of your luggage through the airport terminal, and you get there and they say, The flight's been moved. And you're like, What? That's you. That's you. That's you. Where's the flight? Isn't it funny you get people on a mission trip? I'm going for the Lord. I'm going for the Lord. We're going to see thanks for Jesus. You have some difficulty. And what happens? Infighting. Anger. One mission trip years ago, people decided that they were above these humble circumstances. Somebody broke out their God. It wasn't a golden cap. It was a golden MasterCard. And they went and bought better accommodations. The desert will humble you. The desert has a way of showing you he's God and you're not. It has a way of showing you whether you want to eat what he gives you to eat. Whether you want to go where he tells you to go. Whether or not you want to do what he says to do. The desert has a way of doing that. So why does God leave his people in the desert so much? It's where they learn that he is God. And they are not. Is it a good thing then to be in the desert? Yes. At the Lord's camp. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order. It's a humorous thing. 
It's actually grieving, but it is a humorous thing. We believe that God has called us here. We believe this. And as long, pastors, we agree with you, we'll always be with you. The moment that correction comes, the moment that humbling comes, the stripping of pride, what is the natural response? There are a lot of churches I can serve God anywhere. That is a great prescription to spend a second 40 years in the desert. Some of you have lived this out, you know. You've seen the patterns in your life. You go, wow, there's Sinai again. Look, there it is again. Look, there it is. I'm not going back this time. This is the reason this book is written. It is written, Corinthians says, <coughs> so that we, upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, can be warned from their example. Yeah. Wow. I'm telling you. Be warned. Yeah. How many times do we have to say, if you don't have a daily relationship with God's Word, if you don't learn to praise Him in difficult circumstances, if you do not learn to lead in your home, husbands, if you don't learn to follow in your home, wives, if you don't learn to obey your parents' children, it will not go well with you. And everybody's surprised when it happens to them. They were sure they were the exception to the rule. Let me tell you, you are not the exception to the rule. The devil wants to hurt you. He's playing for real. I don't know whether y'all have ever sparred in here. No Mike has sparred. I spent some time in my life sparring. You ever had a sparring partner that got a little upset? Every once in a while he's throwing real bombs? We're not sparring with the devil. He's throwing real bombs. And so you must also. Don't wait to get punched in the nose to get angry. Don't wait to take it seriously until it has cost you something precious to you. The desert is the time to heighten your awareness. Do you know that every prophet that was called of God, every prophet, came from a desert city? Why would you think that? Every prophet. When Jesus was tested, where did he go? John the Baptist went out preaching where? In the I mean, this is it. February. Elijah came out of the desert. Of the 350 biblical cities that you can go put a marker there. This is where that city is. We found its ruins. It's beyond contestation. 300 of them are in the desert. This is where God refines his people. It's Bayman Bar. What we would like to do is not start with the Passover lamb. I mean, that's too bloody, it's too ugly. Let's, let's do something more seeker-friendly. How many of you would like God? When we do that, we have skipped the starting line. Then we say, God doesn't want you in the desert at all. In fact, it's all blessings now. Heaven upon you now. Heaven now. Heaven, heaven, heaven. It's all heavenly. problem is, is when you examine the congregation, there's very little that is actually heavenly there. Yeah. All the same things found in Solomon and Gomorrah found in the church. All the same things. Paul warned people day and night with tears. There would be wolves wrapped in sheep's clothing. He warned them day and night with tears. I've shed some tears lately. It didn't make me holy. It makes me in love with the Lord. I want to tell you, when you dwell under the cloud, 
you find out what he dwells next to and what he won't dwell next to and things become very clear to you. You find out that there really is no lukewarm or no middle ground. You find out that people will either die for Jesus or they won't. And they always lie about it. <coughs> this is a great time, as I put in the bulletin, to let the Spirit of God illuminate <coughs> your life. You have a notes section in your bulletin. Aside from all of the things that I'm writing down, are giving you to write down. Here was point one, and here was point two. You know, at the end of your life, that's not going to make a lot of difference. The better thing to write down is what in your life right now needs to be changed or is an abuse of God's grace. What is keeping you from hearing the next word from God? Those are the things to write down. The thing to write down is, am I standing under His cloud now, or am I only holding my own umbrella claiming it's God's cloud? This is the things to write down. Saints, I could warn you every day until you experience some of the things that we talked about this morning during worship. It never feels real. It's kind of like, oh, no, no, everybody serves God in their own way. Just because we left your church doesn't mean we're leaving Jesus. That's beside the point, saints. Can God call you? To, he's called Mandy to another church. That's going to happen. That is Jesus, and that's the right way to go. You know what's not the right way to go? Ticked off. Yes. Arms crossed. Avoiding accountability. Deciding that what the Scripture says does not apply to you. Finding fault with the people that give it to you to avoid having to apply it to you. Doing things like crossing your arms in the service and saying, I know He's talking about me, but refusing to listen. Let me tell you, I'm talking about you. <laughs> I think it was last service, I got four phone calls. Maybe in the one before it. Pastor, I know you were talking about me. I told all four people, yes, I was. <laughs> and here's the other side of it. I was talking about me too. And the reason that I get here early in the morning is not to prepare a message. <laughs> That's a great misnomer. In fact, Kelsey spent some time with me in the mornings. He was shocked. I don't actually prepare a message. Look, my notes for this message say, I'm thinking about covering the book of Numbers. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> when you see me glance down every once in a while, I have three scriptures written on this piece of paper that are reminders I might want to cover from numbers. You know what I'm doing in the morning? I'm praying saying, Lord, what is it that I need to be fed in your presence today? And what do I need to bring from your presence today? Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's what I'm doing in the mornings. <clears throat> I could figure out how to do that. If I could figure out how to get next week's bread today, I would. And I'd start teaching long series. And I'd become a lazy pastor. <laughs> I'd do it if I could. I cannot figure out how to get next week's bread today. I only know how to get daily bread because that's what he told me to do. Right. Well, pastor, are you saying that we can't... I'm not saying I'm the rule. What I'm trying to say is that the Word says... To seek daily bread. Amen. Not to preach last year's messages. Who would want to be entertained, you know? If the bread is pretty. Have you all never been into something that looked great and tasted like garbage? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I went to this French restaurant one time and I thought, anything costs that much must be delectable. I mean, this is culinary goodness right here, baby. Woo! 
let's get into it. It's pleasing to the eye. And I bit into it and I thought, no wonder the French are so mean. <laughs> it looked great on the outside and it almost broke my teeth and it didn't give me anything that sustained in the portion size. Why well, just run what are they all midgets in France? <laughs> is hilarious when we're talking about a restaurant. It is not hilarious when we're talking about church. Why don't we do this? Turn to me to chapter 3. Here's one of the things that I think we need to re-examine. When we are in not Leviticus 3, Numbers 3, there are some things that are said that are just quite shocking, really. Who is your pastor? Well, my pastor is so-and-so. Why is he your pastor? I don't even want to go into the answers that you'll get to that question. <laughs> How many of you ever thought of your pastor as a member of your family? How many of you ever considered... Yeah, you don't have a choice, Brandon. <laughs> Judah. Judah, you don't have a choice. The Levites in Israel were for something. Check this out. Verse 11 of chapter 3. The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all of the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. So, well, Eric, you know, that was just kind of figurative. It was, it's just a substitution. Well, how interesting is this? Look at verse 39. The total number of Levites counted at the Lord's command by Moses and Aaron according to their clans, including every male, a month old or more, was 22,000. They have a God who counts. Check this out. Verse 42. So Moses counted all of the firstborn of the Israelites as the Lord commanded. The total number of firstborn males a month old or more listed by name were 22,273. You know what the Lord was doing? He was taking an accounting. He said, every firstborn in Israel belongs to me. Period. They're mine. I'm going to allow you to let a Levite stand in the stead of your firstborn son. They will stand in the place of your firstborn, and they will minister before me. But, I want you to go count them and make sure I'm getting a fair shake. Well, you have 273 more firstborn sons than there are Levites. So he gave them a method to pay with silver to make up for the difference. Wow. The Levites are a gift from God to God's people. <laughs> they are a substitute for your firstborn son. I want you to think about this then. Older women, there's a place in your life where you might look to your firstborn son and say, I really don't know how to handle this. Would you help me? Younger children, there's a place in your life you might look to your older brother, the firstborn son, and say, hey, I need some guidance. You've been doing this longer than me. Dads, there's a place in every dad's life where you cross a threshold and your son has become more capable than you are. Supposed to be your firstborn son. Your pastor 
stands in that stead. I'm not saying he replaces the firstborn. I'm saying this is how God set it up. He said, your firstborn belong to me. I'm going to allow you to let the Levites be a substitute. And that will be a covenant that I make with them. They will be mine. There is no distinction between clergy and laity. The same requirements are of us all. But what clergy does is put a hand upon God's shoulder and a hand upon man's and make peace. How do we do that? We do it by following Jesus' example. So, well, I don't know who you are, a pastor, getting into the personal details of my life. I'm your substitute firstborn son. I don't know who you are, a pastor, commenting on things like that. I'm a substitute for your firstborn son. This is what a right relationship according to the Bible is like. This is why Paul tells Timothy how to relate to the younger women in the church as his sisters, the older women in his church as his mother, older men as a father. This is why. Because he understood these things. But for us, what is a preacher? He's a man hired to tell us things. This is not the Bible. And in the wilderness, you learn the value of having a firstborn son. Now let me ask you, was Jesus a firstborn son? Yes. Was he a Levite? Yes. He took no substitution. You ever wondered how this man could be a priest and not of the tribe of Levi? He didn't need a Levite to stand in his stead for him. He was in right communion with God. The firstborn always belonged to God. Levi was a substitute. Come on now, if you've studied the book of Hebrews, you ought to be saying, that is good. We're not without the ability to teach on the deep things of God. We're without the desire to teach on things that merely entertain. We want you to successfully navigate the wilderness by following Him. Turn with me to Numbers 35. The Lord will speak to you in the desert. There is grace in the desert, but grace always has a limit. Take advantage of it while it's called today. When the presence of God moves, you must move, and you cannot move without the presence of God. It doesn't matter whether it's a short term or a long term. You are the tent of His testimony. Our King has put a five-fold ministry in your life as a substitute for the firstborn. Doesn't replace the firstborn ministers on behalf of the family like a doubly blessed son. And the last thing that I hope to cover with you are the cities of refuge. Chapter 35, verse 6. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge. <laughs> Six of the towns that you give to anybody who claims to love Yahweh, they'll be a refuge. Nope. Six of the towns that are doubly blessed, these will be your cities of refuge. Six of the towns where the amenities are nice, where the sermons are short, where the baptismals are heated and the altars are padded, six of those towns will be your refuge. 
six of the towns of the Levites will be your refuge. I want you to understand not every city in Israel was a city of refuge, and not every building that claims to be a church is a city of refuge. It must be occupied by Levites. It must be occupied by Levites. Don't go to a building where God's lampstand does not exist and tell me it is a Levitical town. There's men who are impersonating Levites and the earth is going to open up and swallow them one day. It doesn't matter what their degrees say, how nice their suits are, and how much you like to hear their honey smooth voices. The cities of refuge must come from among the Levites. To which a person who has killed someone may flee. When you read this in Joshua, the 20th chapter, the first nine, ten verses, something like that, it becomes clear we're talking about manslaughter. There is the teaching that is the text here when we're talking about it, the teaching that shows the organizational structure for Israel, and then there is yet a hint, a romance, something that is a little deeper that inherently your heart will cry out for and you know must true. You may never have killed someone but you certainly know what it is to have a sentence of death in your heart. This scripture in the natural addresses the situation where Mike and I are working. The axe head flies off, smack, smacks Mike in the head. His son doesn't know the circumstances or doesn't care. And he's going to chase me down and kill me because I killed his Paul. It's like an old western. You want to know what the Avenger of Blood is we're going to talk about? Watch any western movie. They're all based on this. So I'm running from Mike's son. And if I can get to a city of refuge, it will be my refuge. If I cannot get to the city of refuge, I belong to the avenger of blood. If I'm in the city of refuge and I decide to leave, guess who's waiting outside? The avenger of blood. Now, do I need to be guilty? No, I just need to be accused. Is there somebody who's accusing you? If there is an accuser there, he is the avenger of blood. And as long as you're accused... The only way for you to be saved is to be in the city of refuge. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. Not every Levitical town is a city of refuge. Well, I can serve God anywhere, you know. No, I don't. I don't know that. Because there were 48 towns given to the Levites and only six of them in which a man who had a death sentence could go to save his life. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 <coughs> towns together with their pasture lands. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. Look at verse 15. These towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites, <laughs> aliens, and any other people who live among them. Both the Passover that I read to you about earlier could be taken from Jew or Gentiles. And the cities of refuge were a refuge for either Jew or Gentile. Anybody who was willing to go where God said go and do what He said to do would be protected from death and death would pass over. I didn't read it to you in Numbers 9 earlier. 
But he said, even if an alien wants to take the Passover with you, if they will do it the way that I say to do it, they can take it. Friends, scriptures like that are why we are included in the body of Christ. The city of refuge is for all who would run to it, who recognize the need and would come to it. Look at verse 26. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled, there is a limit to the city of refuge. The Bible actually gives the number of feet if you're willing to look for it. it tells you just how far you can go. <laughs> this is in fact what the first five books of the Bible are. They're telling you the ruler by which you can measure your distance from the city of refuge. When you're in the city of refuge, do you care how far you're in? You're just happy to be in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're outside the city of refuge, do you care how far away you are? Yep. Yes. <laughs> you do, because you want to know how long it's going to take you to get back. Yep. Let me tell you this. If you're headed the wrong way from the city of refuge, however far you are is too far. Yeah. Wow. Because if the accuser finds you, he will kill you. There are two things that happen in the city of refuge. One is as long as your high priest lives, nobody can harm you. The other is, if your high priest ever dies, general amnesty is granted to everyone in the city. Think about that. We have a high priest who died, and what did he give you? Amnesty from charges. We have a high priest who lives forevermore, and what does that give you? Continual protection. What is the only requirement you have? Stay in his city. So, well, Eric, I thought we were talking about the desert. Why are we talking about cities of refuge? If we're in the desert, there are no cities in the desert. Our God is a city of refuge to all who call upon Him. That's why I left the blank in your bulletin. It says, I believe that the Holy Spirit is encouraging me to teach on this topic because the people of God are fighting between aimless wandering or being led in the desert of... And you get to fill it in. You don't have to be in the desert perpetually. You can be in the refuge. He takes wanderings in a desert and he makes them people who are led of him in a refuge. If you're in the encampment of God's people, what do you have to fear? If you're under the cloud of his presence, what do you have to fear? If you're eating his bread, what do you have to fear? If you're receiving his atonement, what do you have to fear? Is it that you're not born of the right people? No, even the aliens can come be a part. Is it that you're falsely accused? Nope. Because if you stay buried in that high priest in the city of refuge, nothing can harm you and you're granted amnesty. See, there's only one place that there is life. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. Everything outside of him is death. This is where the deception occurs. The deception occurs that you can have the shade of the cloud without dwelling under the cloud. The deception occurs that you can have the provision of the heavenly God without following the leading of the heavenly God. The deception occurs when it says 
It doesn't matter what city you're in, God will be your refuge. About two weeks ago in my office, a young man looks at me and tells me he's sexually impure. Wow, that wasn't hard for you to say at all. He began to tell me all about these things and then proclaimed to me that God was with him. See, this is the lie of the American church. We can do whatever the hell we want and we're in heaven right now. You cannot act like hell and dwell in heaven. Yeah. It does not work. I told him and I've not seen him again. Because somebody else out there will tell him whatever he wants to hear for a price. Friends, it is serious. Yes. There's battle going on all around us. It's so serious that when I preached to you about the war effort, y'all remember that? Mm -hmm. War effort, even your table scraps are important. Mm -hmm. Even that message fell under attack and is corrupted. We can't upload it. That's okay, I will preach it again. <laughs> it is so serious that the enemy works to keep you out of this place so that you will not be focused on God's face. You'll be focused on every other thing. He's trying to change you from a tent of testimony of Him to a tent of a different kind of testimony. The kind of thing men should hide their face from, but these people of the dark have loved to relish in their darkness. It is important now more than ever that the children of God stand and boldly hold the word of truth and shine like stars. Amen. It is not easy to do. Some of you walked in here with serious problems. I walked in here with serious problems. What you found out about today, Lindsay, Matthew, and I have been working on for a month. What we do in the desert determines whether or we're not here His people. And you cannot say that you would die for Him if we cannot subdue our emotions our desires, our dreams, our thoughts, and make them captive to Him. That's right. You can. It does not matter whether you are in a Chinese jail cell, in an arid desert, or floating in the open sea. He will be your refuge. Yes. And if you die, you will live forever. This is the mystery of the Gospel. And it is for every man and woman in this room, as many as who would come. Now stand your feet, we'll pray.